Well, let's turn together for a few moments to Matthew chapter 27, those verses that we read earlier, page 998. Well, maybe you have had the opportunity to play some board games over Christmas. Maybe you are a Pictionary expert, not, of course, up to the artistic standard that your minister has, but um, never mind. Imagine you are, you're playing Pictionary, and uh, somebody has slipped into the categories King Jesus. What would you draw? What, what, what sort of pictures might you put on the board or on the paper? What would jump into your mind? Maybe you'd think of glorified Jesus in Revelation, the lion and the lamb. But, but Matthew would have us see that this Jesus that stands before Pilate in his brokenness, that he is the king, that, that he is the one whom the soldiers mock as king, but he really is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's a prisoner. He has been beaten and spat upon. He will be again, but he is the king of all and the king of you and me. We've been following this story of Jesus and following it particularly before Christmas in this approach to the cross. You remember we've said that the action really slows down now and that there's lots of detail packed in as Jesus approaches the cross. The events that we've read of here happen on Good Friday morning, very early on Good Friday morning. Jesus was arrested on the Thursday night, this is Easter week as it were, and um, uh, he is uh, tried before the Jews, before some representatives of the Sanhedrin, um, uh, during the night, and then he's passed over to Pilate in the morning. Chapter 27 begins with the Sanhedrin sort of ratifying the decision that has been taken during the night. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. The situation was, of course, that the Jews could find Jesus guilty and worthy of death, but they needed the Romans to find him guilty of a different set of charges, really, so that they could put him to death because only the Romans had the ability to actually carry out that sentence in the country. And so Jesus comes before Pilate. Pilate was the governor, the most powerful man in the country. He represented Caesar himself. And the name's familiar to us, of course, not only because of the Gospels, he appears in all four Gospels, but also because of the Apostles' Creed. We, we often say, Jesus crucified under Pontius Pilate. Pilate has the ultimate responsibility for whether Jesus lives or dies. He's a very unpopular governor. We knew about him from other areas of history. He'd been very harsh at times. He hadn't paid attention to Jewish sensibilities. There'd been a number of uprisings. His, his name was probably not covered in glory in Rome because he wasn't doing a very good job. But being um, the, the, the sort of governor of, of this part of the world was a bit like being Northern Ireland's secretary. It was hard to get it right. And uh, he wasn't doing a great job. Skeptical people like to suggest that the Bible is full of myths and, and made-up stories. Maybe some of us 
here today. I've got questions about the authenticity of the Bible. You know, it's just great to, to find that, that so many of the discoveries of archaeology just back up the history of these books. So, for example, uh, in, uh, let me get this right, 1961, there was no, there was no uh, archaeological record of Pilate. There was uh, references in Jewish historians and so on outside the Bible. But 1961, they dug up this stone uh, in Caesarea, the, the, up in the top left-hand side, and on it was a reference to, to Pilate, an inscription uh, about Pilate, the first uh, archaeological discovery about him. Just in, in November there, before Christmas, uh, they found this ring. This ring had been discovered in, in 1950, um, but some recent uh, sort of scanning techniques and so on were, were able to be applied to it this year or last year. And it was seen to be a, a ring in which uh, Pilate's name was embossed on behalf of Pilate. It's quite a cheap ring, so it was thought that it was being used by one of his servants as a sort of a stamp to uh, emboss uh, leaflets and, and, and uh, whatever else he had to, uh, to sign, as it were. So, so these are not fairy stories that we're dealing with. There, there was a, a real person called Jesus who stood in front of a real person called Pilate. And we need to reckon with that. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? That was what he was interested in. He, he, Rome was particularly concerned about political instability and someone who came claiming a kingdom was someone that had to be dealt with. And Jesus replies to him in, in a rather cryptic sort of way, yes, it is as you say. It's not a terribly strong sort of statement. It's him saying, well, that's what you're saying. But Matthew wants us to understand this is the king. Now, he's not the sort of king that we would expect. He's not got a proper crown. He's not got a proper robe or a throne, but he is the king. And he's actually the one who has come to save. He's, as a king is, he's in charge. And the question is not, what will he do, but will, what will others do with him? That's the big question that needs to be in our minds as we read about Jesus in the Gospels, as we think about Jesus, what will we do with this person? One of the, 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 the great uh, uh, historical paintings is, is of Pilate presenting Jesus to the crowd. Uh, Behold the man. And the question is, what will we do with him? In another place in the Bible, Jesus is described as, as a stone. We use this as our call to worship, Romans 9. I lay a stone in Zion that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. But the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You see, we have this choice. We either stumble over Jesus or we trust in him. We might say we stumble over him or we rest on him. And here as we see Jesus at this most crucial point in the story, we find him coming in to intersect with all of these people's lives and we find a number of people stumbling over him just now. So, for example, in our story, we have Judas. The way Jesus gets here at one level is because of Judas. Judas has betrayed him with lots of speculation about the motivation that Judas has to betray him. Maybe he's trying to provoke him into starting a rebellion to become this a Jewish leader and, and a leading an uprising. Maybe he just grows tired of Jesus. He's not what I wanted him to be. He's not what I thought he was going to be. But whatever his motivation, he betrays him, and then he comes to a realization about what he has done. 
He's full of remorse. He realizes he is betrayed, as he puts it, innocent blood. He gives the money back to the priests. And, and they, interestingly, isn't it amazing how at the same time that they're plotting Jesus' death, they, they have these moral scruples about, well, how should we use this money? We can't just put it back into the treasury. It's tainted. Uh, we, we'll use it to buy this field to bury foreigners. So here they are. Judas has stumbled over Jesus. He doesn't come back looking to Jesus in repentance. He's just full of remorse. He knows nothing of Jesus' grace. He does not look for forgiveness from God, and in despair, he ends his life. He stumbles over him. He was close to him. He thought he wanted to be a follower, but as he understood who Jesus was, he said, this is not for me. Many have done that, haven't they? We know people like that. They've looked into Jesus for a time, and it looks as if they are really keen, and then they say, not for me. And what they're really saying, of course, is I know there's something better, or I know better. And they stumble over him because of that. Now, we know what the Bible says to us, don't we? We cannot do better than this Jesus. If he's who he says he is, we cannot do better than to live our lives in submission to this king. Our labor for this Lord is not in vain. Judas stumbles over Jesus, thinking he can do better. Pilate, Pilate is clearly intrigued by Jesus. He's never met anyone like him. When all the chief priests put all of these charges to him, uh, he remains silent. Pilate is amazed by that. It's, it's, it's almost as if Jesus is resigned or determined to go to the cross. And Pilate, interestingly, doesn't see Jesus as a threat to Rome. Some people are keen to paint Jesus as a sort of a Che Guevara revolutionary figure who stands against the powerful and so on. And yet Pilate does not see him as a threat to Rome. His kingdom is of an altogether different nature. And so knowing this, seeing the malevolence of the Jews, he wants to release Jesus. He, he doesn't want to play along with them. But though, he doesn't want, but though he bears responsibility, he doesn't want to take the decision, and so he takes an easy way out, a way that he thinks will work, and he offers the crowd Barabbas. It was this custom to release a prisoner at the time of Passover. Surely Jesus will, will, will be chosen over Barabbas, he thinks to himself. But the religious leaders who have come have brought the crowd, presumably. They have shaped the crowd and the crowd cry for Barabbas to be released. Pilate knows the right thing to do. He's not in any doubt. If you had asked him what would be the upright thing, what would be the moral thing to do, he would have had no question but to say, uh, release Jesus. He's clearly an innocent man. And that's helped by the fact for Pilate that his wife has this dream about Jesus. Matthew's the only one to tell us about that. Romans were particularly superstitious about dreams. It was very bad in their eyes to ignore the message of a dream. But all of this it confirms what his conscience is telling him. It's not telling him something that he doesn't know. Pilate is violating his conscience here. God has, has built into human beings a conscience. It's wrong to go against it. And Pilate is going against it here. I remember hearing this illustration that I always find 
very powerful and about a, a jet airline that crashed. 1984, Avianca Airlines jet crashed into mountains as it approached an airport in Spain. And the black box was recovered. And, and of course, one of the things that it does is it records all the, the conversation that's happening in the cockpit. And it was analyzed and, and played back. And just before the collision, what happened was that a computer voice came on in the cockpit and said, pull up, pull up. It was clearly heard on the flight recorder. But the crew thought that it was malfunctioning. And one of the pilots could be heard saying, shut up, and turning it off. And moments later, the plane hit the mountain and everyone died. You see, God has given us a conscience. It's an early warning system for the soul. And Pilate is flicking the switch of his conscience and saying, shut up. I do not want to hear you. He allows this terrible miscarriage to take place. Now, one of the things that we're going to say in a moment is that we're not looking just at the sins of others. We're seeing in these people some of the things that lurk in our own hearts. Have you ever flicked the switch on your conscience and said, shut up, I know better? Pilate is someone who's shown to uh, know the right thing to do, to, to uh, look at what it was going to cost him and to do what he knew to be wrong. He doesn't want more unrest. He doesn't want word getting back to Rome that he's not a good governor. He doesn't want to lose face or lose his position. He tries to pin the blame on everyone else. He, he tries to, to wash his hands to say, I'm innocent of this man's blood. But even the very fact that he does that knows that he is guilty. Like, like Macbeth. Macbeth says, Will all the great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? He has stumbled over Jesus. You see what he's done? He's, he's tried to save his own skin, his own safety and comfort and future above Jesus Christ. He's put all of those things first. You ever felt like doing that? Ever felt the cost of doing the right thing? And then trying to wash our hands and saying, I have no choice really. You see, these are not only the sins of others. They're the sins of human beings. We stumble over Jesus when we don't put him first. What about the crowd? They, they, they stumble over Jesus too. They, they choose this murderer over an innocent man. They know that Jesus is innocent. They know that Barabbas is guilty, and they choose him. It's a picture of the human heart, isn't it? Choosing the wrong over the right. But there's something particularly chilling about this crowd, isn't there? As, as Pilate washes his hands in, in verse 24, he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility to the crowd. Verse 25, all the people answered, let his blood be on us and our children. What a serious thing it must be to know the consequences of our sin, to, to have been warned of them, and then to, to say, let his blood be on us and our children. To welcome judgment. To, to, it's to fully believe the, the, the lie that the serpent has begun in the garden you shall not surely die. There is no judgment. 
You see, friends, this is the, this is the human heart with God's restraint removed. Paul says of human beings in Romans, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is what we're like. The crowd shows us what we could be stumbling over Jesus, in fact, launching ourselves over him willingly. So all of these people, you see, as they intersect with Jesus at this crucial point, they stumble over him. Jesus, uh, Judas, uh, the Jewish leaders, uh, the, 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 the pilot, the crowd, the soldiers, we could speak about so many of them. How, how bleak all of this is, how twisted the heart of man is. Been reading the Westminster Confession again just in in preparation for some of the things we're going to do on Wednesday nights. It's, it's such a wonderful document. It, it sums up so clearly what the Bible says, and, and as a result of sin in our lives, it describes us like this. We are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. See, this is what we see when the climax is reached, when, when Jesus is presented to the world, as it were, opposite to all goods, wholly inclined to evil. Now, if that's what we're like, if that's what we're like, what do we need? We, we don't need a, an example. We don't need someone to come along and say, be the best you that you can be for 2019. We don't need to find a, a, a self-help book in Eason's to, to uh, make something decent of ourselves. There's no hope in that. We don't need a hand up. We don't need God to help those who, helps them, who help themselves. We're far beyond that. We need a, a savior. We need a, a rescuer. We need, in fact, a substitute. We know that we're deserving of judgment because we see the things in these people's lives that are so awful, we see them in ourselves. So we need someone to pay for our sin. We need someone to take our place. Could this be the king who really dies for us? Well, he is. Because even in the bleakness of this passage it's pointed to here, we, we, we could read on and, and look at verse 27 and following. The soldiers uh, treat Jesus particularly badly. They, they uh, dress him in a, a, a robe and a crown and uh, a scepter. Remember, we said that Jesus didn't look like a king, but now he has these marks of kingship. But now he looks like a king who is suffering terribly, a king who is despised. He looks like a king who is in the hands of his enemies and is about to die because that's what he is. It's pointed to in the soldiers. It's pointed to with Barabbas. How unexpected this day was for Barabbas. Barabbas was not a good man. Mark tells us he's been involved in an uprising that people had died. He was a murderer. He, he was expecting to die. In fact, many people suggest that on that day, Barabbas was due to be on that central cross. In other words, the cross that Jesus was on was Barabbas' cross. The Romans would have wanted to crucify an insurrectionist at the most public of times in the Passover to say, this is what happens to an enemy of Rome. You better keep your heads down. And yet on that day, he finds himself going free while Jesus takes his place. 
The death that should have been his has died by Jesus. The freedom that should have been his, that, 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 that Jesus should have had, becomes his. You see, this is, this is what we need. Friend, if you're here today and, and you're thinking, do you know what? 2019, a little bit of religion will be good for me. I want to get a little bit of Christianity and try better. I want to clean myself up a bit. That just will not do. It's this Jesus that you need. We need Jesus to take our place. And, and this is exactly what he does. He is the king who takes our place. We sometimes sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. So it's the dawn of 2019. Who'd have thought it? I, I do remember as a young child doing the maths and realizing that when the year 2000 turned round, I would be 30 at the millennium. And I remember thinking, that's ages away. Now it's ages ago. And here's another year that will quickly pass. It's going to be full of uncertainties, isn't it? Where is our hope in this year? On what can we plant our feet? Everything seems to be shifting. Wouldn't it be great if we had a rock on which we could stand? A rock over which some may stumble, but on which we could rest. This is the Jesus that we have. He's the king who has died, who has taken our place, that we might find ourselves safe in him and on him. Let's pray together.